Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I believe our applause is, is because we're so excited to be reminded of that truth, that, that we are victorious, we are conquerors. God, it's easy for us to lose sight of that as we deal with the, the circumstances of our world, as we deal with situations where we certainly don't feel like we're winning. Oh, Lord, would you remind us of this truth, that the world does not get the last say, that a great victory has been won for us at the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that that becomes more and more real in our lives every day. And, and that when I respond to situations, when I get news, when I learn about things going on, that God, I respond and I live and I act as somebody who is victorious in the person of Jesus. Oh Lord, may this be a truth that gets grounded deeper and deeper into my life. In our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Andrea and choir and orchestra. That was wonderful. It's been a, been a great morning of worship, hasn't it? Uh, you know, you and I have a command on our lives. We've got a lot of commands, don't we? The Bible's filled with commands. But there is a specific command. Now, whenever you hear a command, you, you have to ask, I, I'm either fulfilling the command or I'm not. I'm either doing that or I'm not. Well, you have a command on your life. I have a command on our life that our God, the, the one who created us, the one who's going to judge us, has placed on our lives. He has commanded that you and I grow, that we grow in our knowledge, our understanding of his son, Jesus Christ. That command appears in a, in a lot of places. Let me quote one. Second Peter 3.18 says, grow. There's the command. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Growth is to be a normal, expected part of my life. I should know more about Jesus, his life, his, his teachings, his ministry, his character, his way. I should know more about him today than I did a year ago. Isn't that what that command would mean? If I can stand before God and I'm obeying that command, then that should be true more today of what I know than a year ago. And it should be true that in a, another year, I'm going to know more than I know right now. There, there's a constant state of growth in my life. I'm going to grow through the study of Scripture, my knowledge of what, of what God teaches about His Son. I'm going to grow by the experience of actually following Christ, walking with Christ through this world. I certainly pray that a, a particular sermon, this series, our everything we do in this church is aiding in you growing in that knowledge of Jesus, is inspiring that following and experience of knowing Jesus Christ. We come today very specifically to grow in our knowledge of that person of Jesus. We're going to answer one of our 20 questions. Today we come to answer, what is God the Son? And we're going to take four sermons. I think this may be one of the longer questions. We're going to take four sermons, four Sundays, to answer this question. Today, we're going to look at the pre-existence of Jesus and the prophecies that surrounded his life. Next week, we're going to look at his humanity and deity and how there is this 100% God, 100% man in this person of Jesus. We're going to look at his death and resurrection Understand all the meaning 
that is behind that. And then we're going to end by looking at what is Jesus doing right now? What is he up there doing? We spend so much time studying what he has done, what he has been for us, but, but what is he doing right now? Folks, I believe you can set your, this course of your life on no greater pursuit than a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Folks, to study him quickens the heart. It strengthens the resolve. It purifies the soul. And as I said, I pray this, this sermon, this series, pray that everything we do here launches you into a lifestyle. Not a moment, not an activity, but a lifestyle of growing in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, if I made this statement that Jesus Christ is the most inspiring character, the most inspiring person that's ever walked on this earth, I don't think there'd be a lot of disagreement around the world. Islam tends to acknowledge that, that Jesus was a great prophet. Hinduism and, and Buddhism see Jesus as a holy man, as a great teacher. There are those that believe he, he lived a, a perfect life, a godlike life, so much so that, that when he died, he, he graduated, if you will, into deity. That, that he has become like a god or he has become a god. Folks, you need to understand that Christianity and the scriptures do not, they do not applaud the world's approval of Jesus' life. We do not reduce him to being a great man. We do not believe he lived such a life that he became a God. You might remember that when we were studying the different attributes of God, that one of those attributes was God's eternal nature, that he is eternal. He, he always has been, he is right now, and he always will be. And if you'll remember, we said that each one of those attributes applies equally to each member of the Trinity. It's true of the Father, it's true of the Son, it's true of the Holy Spirit. It has to. It has to because you might remember another attribute we studied, and that is that God is immutable. He's unchanging in his perfection. So see, if you have back here somewhere a God the Father where there's not God the Son or God the Spirit, and that later gets added, well, then you've got God changing. And if that's added, then that means you can go to a time and place that God is less than He is right now. And if that's true, He might be less right now than He's going to be one day. And if He's less, that's not perfect. Folks, that would be completely and totally contradictory to everything that scripture teaches. Jesus Christ is eternally the son of God. Bethlehem is not his beginning. Now that's my statement. Let's watch, let's see scripture teach this. Would you turn with me this morning to John chapter 1? John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some on the, the chairs in front of you, the little racks underneath the chairs. I hope you'll grab one and study along with us. Fourth book into the New Testament, John chapter 1. We're just going to be looking at one verse here in chapter 1, and that's verse 1. John 1, verse 1. It says there, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, that word, Word, 
Are, are you with me? The word, word, is a name for Jesus. It's a title of Jesus. When it's calling him the word, it's saying he is the truth about God. Jesus is the revelation about God. And if you're wondering, well, yeah, but how do I know for sure that, that when John wrote this, that he was calling Jesus the word? Well, if you go to verse 14, you'll see that John does show that Jesus is the word. So we could read this whole verse over, and just to make it for clarity's sake, we could say, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Now that word was, you still with me? Now we're heading into a grammar lesson, so put on your seatbelts, okay? Grammar's our favorite subject in school, right? Okay? This word was, in the Greek language, this is actually important, is in the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense implies a continual existence in the past. So let's read this all over again with clarity and read it literally as it's grammatically written. It's saying, in the beginning, Jesus was continually existing. And Jesus was continually existing with God. And Jesus was continually existing as God. So right here, the very first verse in the Gospel of John, it is proclaiming the pre-existence of Jesus, the eternal nature of Jesus, the deity of Jesus. Now that's what John is writing about Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is communicating about Jesus. Does Jesus actually claim this about himself? Well, he does. Look at chapter 8, still in John. John chapter 8. Again, just a couple of verses here. John 8, verse 57. I'm going to begin reading here, kind of in the middle of a story. We're, we're kind of jumping in the middle of something. Jesus and the, and the Pharisees are not getting along. They're, they're, they're kind of going at it here. And, and they're talking about Abraham. And in verse 57, the Jews replied, You aren't even 50 years old yet. And you've seen Abraham? See, Jesus has implied that he existed before Abraham. Well, now he goes beyond implying to make it quite direct. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. Very important for our understanding, verse 59. At that, at that statement, they picked up stones to throw at him. Now, the implication is out there that Jesus existed before Abraham did. Now, as, as you're standing there in Jesus' physical life at that moment, Abraham is 2,000 years in the past. So that's kind of awkward, you know. We don't usually meet a lot of people who existed 2,000 years ago. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is claiming. Before Abraham, Father Abraham, Father of the Jews, whom you know, before he existed 2,000 years ago, I existed before that. That was the implication in verse 58. It's beyond an implication, it's a direct claim. Yes, I existed before Abraham. So Jesus clearly said, spoke of his pre-existence. But then he goes a little bit further. And he says, I am. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago we studied the attributes of God? Then we studied the names of God. And do you remember that name of God? I am. In the Hebrew language, it's Yahweh. And it speaks of the eternal nature of God, the self-existence of God. Nothing caused God. Nothing started God. Nothing began God. He has always existed. He is the uncaused cause. And in those two little words that you and I would read right by, I mean, they're, they're two kind of nondescript little words there, I am. 
We say I am all the time, don't we? But Jesus says, I am. He is claiming right here to be the eternal Yahweh. You say, well, how do you know that's what he's claiming? I mean, gosh, three letters, two words. That's why I said verse 59 is so important. In our context, in our language, we'll read right by Jesus saying, I am. But in their context, they did not run right by it. For him to claim to be the eternal Yahweh in their minds was blasphemy. And that's why they picked up stones to stone him. So sometimes we understand a person's words by understanding how the audience around him responded. And clearly they understood Jesus to say he was eternal. He existed before Abraham. He was the eternal. He is the eternal Yahweh. Another verse, Colossians 1.17, I'm not going to turn to it, it's just a short phrase there, where it says, He, referring to Jesus, is before all things. So folks, this isn't just a little truth that we find somewhere tucked away in a verse nobody gets to. It is all throughout Scripture, over and over and over, it is referring to the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. One other verse I want us to look to, and I'd like us all to get there, Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Now, Micah is not a place we get to a lot, is it? You may even want to go straight to your table of contents. This is one of these minor prophets, just a few pages. They're all bunched together. You can flip right through it and not even know you passed it. It's right after Jonah, right before Nahum and Habakkuk. If you're in that neighborhood, you know you're nearby. Are you finding it? Micah, Micah, M-I-C-A-H, Micah chapter 5. Verse 2. This might be one you want to underline. It's a cool verse. Micah 5, 2. It says there, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. This is God speaking. Remember, all of this is God's word. And he's saying, out of Bethlehem, Somebody's going to be born in Bethlehem that is going to be a king, a ruler over Israel. You know, okay, there's, there's going to be a king and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. But God makes it clear now while he's being born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem's not his beginning. He, he comes before that. He's got an origin prior to Bethlehem. Look at this. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin, his beginning, his starting it's from antiquity. It's from eternity. We have God here teaching that his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he is coming from eternity. Folks, Jesus Christ is not a great man. He's not a great teacher. He's not a great prophet. He was not so wonderful and good that he became a God. He is eternally, always has been, always will be the eternal Son of God. That is the clear teaching, the clear testimony of Scripture. Now, of course, some will say, well, the Bible doesn't, you, you can't use that to prove anything. Well, I, I would actually refer you to my sermon on what is the Bible, where we saw that it is absolutely authoritative for proving things spiritually, historically, archaeologically, scientifically. Everything about God is proved in Scripture. So it is worthy of our looking at and listening to. And the Bible clearly says that Jesus Christ existed before Bethlehem. He is the eternal Son of God. So Micah 5.2 says, one is coming. The Messiah, 
the Son of God. One is coming. But that still leaves open the question for you and me. How do we know who that one is? I I mean, can anybody? Can anybody stand up and say, I'm the one. I came from eternity. I mean, can you prove I didn't? I know what it looks like. Do you? Well, how do I know when I say that or somebody else says that? I mean, let's be honest. There's a lot of religions in the world, aren't there? A lot of religious leaders, a lot of people claiming and proclaiming. How do we know? Well, folks, God loves his son and he wants you to love his son. And he knows it's going to be in our nature to miss it or reject it or ignore it. And he doesn't want us to. So he surrounds this gift that he has with us with some pretty spectacular things so that we don't miss who that one coming from eternity is. I like to think of of this as big neon arrows. Prophecy is big neon arrows all pointing at Jesus saying, this is the one, this is the one, this is how we validate, this is how we verify, this is how we know. And all of the people, religions out there making claims, this is how we wade through all that to get to the one true God, the one true Son of God. And that's prophecy. No other religion does this like Scripture. Prophecy where God says, This is what is going to happen in the future. And he gives specific details so that when we get there, we know, oh, that's the one. That's what it looks like. Yeah, that's exactly what God said it was going to look like when we came up on that event or we came up on that person. And Jesus' life is surrounded with these prophecies. Let me show you several just all surrounding his entrance into the world. It was prophesied in Isaiah that Je- the, the Messiah, that the Son of God, would be come, come into this world by a virgin birth. Now notice out there to, next to Isaiah 7.14, that was written in 700 B.C. 700, 740 B.C., hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ existed. And then we get into Matthew, and it says that Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit... And that Joseph kept her a virgin until that son, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, was born. Now, somebody might look at that and say, well, now, wait a minute. You you can't prove that. You you can't prove that Mary was a virgin. You can't prove that happened by a virgin birth. Okay, you know what? For a moment, let's say that's right. I can't can't prove that. I, I mean, I can't test that. I can't show you that. But I want you to at least for a moment acknowledge this. In history, in 700 B.C., that's a historical fact. Doesn't matter whether you believe the Bible or not. Doesn't matter whether you believe God's can tell the future or not. It is a historical fact that the book of Isaiah existed in 700, 740 B.C. And that verse was written. And 700 years later, there was a story reported of a woman who gave birth as a virgin. That is a historical fact. The story of it, whether you believe it or not, whether you think it can be proved or not, it at least happened. The story is reported that way. And doesn't that kind of, you know, clear the deck of who can qualify for son of God? I mean, you know, if you didn't get here by virgin birth, don't line up for this application. You know, I mean, that really kind of narrows it down for us. Has to be by a virgin birth. Let's look at a second one. Now, this is also a supernatural event. Maybe also something say we can't prove that. But notice it did, it is reported in history, it is reported that it happened. And that is that God said he would declare who his son is. 
Isaiah, or excuse me, Psalm chapter 2. It's written by David, written 1000 B.C., 900 B.C., 900 to 1,000 years before. David is writing, God is speaking, this is my son. He is going to declare that. And then we know the story in Matthew chapter 3 of, you might remember Jesus being baptized, and remember when he came up out of the water, what happened? The heavens opened and God spoke, this is my son. And folks, here again, it's historical fact that it was said this was going to happen. It's historical fact that a man named Jesus was baptized and there was witnesses there who heard this. So I don't believe it. That's supernatural. You can't prove it. For the moment, acknowledge that it's at least all recorded in history. Okay? Now, those are supernatural. A little bit more difficult to prove. But there's a lot of prophecies that do not require a particular faith. They don't require you, your belief in the supernatural. There was prophecy about what family that uh, the Messiah would enter this world through. Think of all the nations of the world, all the nations in history. But God said there would be one nation, Israel. And there would be one tribe, Judah. And out of the tribe of Judah, because Judah is a huge tribe, but God narrows it down to one family. Go ahead and put all these verses up there. And for those of you that are trying to furiously take notes right now, uh, let me remind you, all of the PowerPoint, you can go to our, uh, our webpage, chbaptist.com, click on the uh, sermon series, and uh, you'll be able to go there and download the, the, all the PowerPoint, all the notes that we got. You'll be able to listen to it, download it through iTunes, or, or however you want to get to it. So go check all that out. But you see, there's all the passages that, nail, that, that narrow it down, what family line, ultimately the house of David. Now, I want you to see how these prophecies work together. What if I could prove to you today, I have no idea how I would do this, but what if I could prove to you that I, me, Randy Hahn, I arrived on this earth through a virgin birth? Wouldn't that be pretty cool? Oh, come on. I mean, it'd be a little bit cool, wouldn't it? You don't know anybody else, do you? Okay, so for the moment, you're saying, okay, you're able to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, scientifically, I arrived here through a virgin birth. Would that make me the Messiah? No, because I'm not in the tribe of Judah, family line of Jesse, out of the house of David. So you see, it's folks, it's not Jesus meeting one or two of these prophecies or, or fulfilling some of the really cool ones, the great ones. No, they all work together. Every single one of them has to be true. We're not shooting for average here or more than half. Every one of the prophecies has to be true. Not only does God narrow down the family line, God nails the exact place. The exact place. Think of all the places people are born. It's a big blue marble, right? God says, but on this big blue marble, one spot, Bethlehem. And we already read that passage, Micah 5, 2, where God said... Out of, out of Bethlehem will come the one who is from eternity. I mean, folks, you realize how easy God's making it for us here? I don't have to look at babies being born in any other place on the whole planet. It will be out of Bethlehem. Sure enough, Matthew chapter 2 records that Jesus was born where? Bethlehem. Every single one of these prophecies comes true for Jesus. Not only that, it was even prophesied, we know this is a part of the Christmas story, that, that gifts would be brought to him. 
You may not have known that was actually told in, 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 uh, in history. In Isaiah, again, chapter 60, 700 years before it happened. Look at that. They will bring gold and frankincense. Not just that they'll bring gifts. Not just that they'll bring expensive stuff. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. And you already know the next verse, don't you? You already know that Christmas story that Magi came out of the east and they came bringing what? Gold and frankincense and myrrh and they worshipped him. And folks, let me tell you something. God is not one of these fortune tellers who, who gives these very general descriptions, you know, that have a bullseye as big as Texas. No, man, God nails it. He is specific. He is concrete. He is exact. It'll be in this exact point, this exact family, by this exact means. And over and over and over again, God lays out these prophecies and every single one of them is fulfilled. And not just prophecies around his, his birth, but there's many prophecies right around his life his death and his resurrection, defining, explaining very specific details. Look at a list of these. Look at these things. Now, it says up there, prophecies foretold hundreds of years before. Folks, Isaiah, again, you've heard me say that, was written in 700, 740 B.C. That's a fact. It doesn't matter whether you believe the Bible or not. That's a historical fact. Psalms written mostly in the 900s B.C. to 1000 B.C. That's a fact. Zechariah 400, 500 B.C. So, folks, these things being written are being written 400, 500, 900, a thousand years before Jesus' life, giving very specific detail of what it's going to look like, what's going to be happening in his life. Look at some of these things. It was foretold that he would be preceded by a messenger. You know where that was fulfilled? In the person of John the Baptist. Uh, that he would be resurrected. I mean, we were told he's going to die and he's going to be resurrected, betrayed by a friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver. Now, that one kills me. I mean, folks, think about it. These Pharisees, now I don't know how much you know about the Pharisees. Obviously, when you read in the New Testament, you get kind of a negative picture of them. But, but the Pharisees were brilliant people. I mean, they were scholars. They were, were very adept at Scripture. They would have known the prophecies about the Messiah. They knew Jesus was proclaiming to be the Messiah. It seems like somebody in that group would have put two and two together and said, now listen, when we pay Judas, pay him anything but 30 pieces of silver. Give him 29, give him 33, but don't give him 30 pieces of silver. What'd they pay him? 30 pieces of silver. And when Judas realized what he had done, after he had taken that and gone on and betrayed Jesus. You remember what he did with it? He took the money back and he threw it into the temple. You know what? That was foretold. That's exactly what was going to happen. It was foretold that, it, that the Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. You know what's interesting about that is when David wrote that, Roman crucifixion didn't exist. Nobody was crucified at that time. There, that, that wasn't a way of execution, a, a, a way of death. And yet, what happened at the cross? Folks, I encourage you, write this down. Read Psalm 22, read Isaiah 53. You would think you were reading a New Testament account of what happened at the cross. And yet, these are being written 700, 900 years before it happened. Uh, crucified with thieves. Uh, bones not broken. Man, lots of people died without their bones being broken. 
But did you know that in the crucifixion, that the normal way to end the crucifixion was to break their legs? Ultimately, the way a crucifixion killed you was it suffocated. Because as you hung there, you couldn't breathe. And you would push up on your feet to draw a breath. And when they got tired of it, when they got tired of being out there all day, the soldiers would then break the legs of those being crucified so they couldn't push up anymore. And then they would suffocate very quickly. So what would normally be expected in a crucifixion is that their legs would be broken, but it had already been prophesied. No, his bones are not going to be broken. But it was also prophesied that his side would be pierced. That was not ever a normal way to end a crucifixion. But guess what they did to Jesus? They pierced his side. God even prophesied he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. And he was. His name was Joseph of Arimathea, a very rich man who gave his tomb for Jesus. Folks, it's incredible. God calls this. Again, I can't say this enough. I could care less what you think about Scripture or what you believe about the supernatural. This is historical fact. All of this stuff, much of this stuff, can be verified in historical documents outside of Scripture. These are facts. And God calls it hundreds of years in advance over and over and over, getting it right every single time. And some will even object to this. Some will look at this as the red arguments against the prophecies. And, and one of them, this is my favorite one, is, th- th- well, the reason this happened is because Jesus, he did it on purpose. Yeah, of course he did it on purpose. I think it's an accident. <laughs> now, of course, what, what the guy was really saying is that, well, Jesus manipulated everything. He he manipulated the story of his life or the writers manipulated things so that it looked like Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies. Well, now I'll tell you something, you know, some of this, some of this he could manipulate. You know, I suppose I suppose Jesus could go to Judas. Let's pretend for a moment that Judas is actually very close to Jesus, a faithful, loyal follower. And and, and Jesus goes to him and says, this is what I really need you to do. Okay. I've got to fulfill these things. It's got to look like I'm the son of God. Judas, I need you to go turn me in. I need you to betray me. And and Judas would say, Lord, if that's what you want, I'll do it. Yeah, he he could manipulate that. He he could make that happen. Maybe even Jesus would would get an audience with Pontius Pilate, you know, prior to his arrest and say, listen, it's coming. I'm going to be arrested and they're going to bring you before me. I, I know this sounds crazy. I want you to execute me. I, I, I want you to, to crucify me. and I'll even pay you to do that. Will you do that? Pontius Pilate says, well, yeah, sure, no problem. Yeah, you could manipulate some things like that. But, you know, even if he could manipulate a lot of these things, you know, and obviously we're, we're making this argument that he's malignant because we don't believe he's the son of God. We believe he's, he's just a man. So I'm just curious, how does just this man, Jesus, manipulate the family he's born into? How does he do that? How does he manipulate the village that he's going to be born into? Or my favorite, how does he manipulate world leaders from another region of the world coming and bringing gifts to him as a baby? How does he manipulate that? I mean, it seems like he'd have to be almost, well, like, well, like God or something, right? Yeah, I think that's the point, isn't it? Yeah, another another objection to the prophecies. And this is a cool one, too. It's a coincidence. It was just a coincidence that he, he fulfilled all of these prophecies. Now, you know, you stop and think about that, and you think, well, wait a minute. Jesus wasn't the only boy born in Bethlehem. 
I mean, there was other people, other boys born in Bethlehem. So, I mean, I guess there's, you know, at a moment, you know, at any moment in history, you can say, okay, all of these little boys right here, they all qualify for the moment of potentially being the Son of God. As a matter of fact, Bethlehem is in the land or the, the, the tribe area of Judah. So, so most of them are also going to be a part of Judah. And I would imagine some of those being born in Bethlehem are, are in the house of David. So yeah, there, there are other people that you could potentially say for a moment now, they, they fulfill that prophecy too. So, you know, it could be kind of a, a coincidence. But the problem is Jesus didn't fulfill two or three prophecies. He fulfilled 61 major, a lot of minor prophecies. He fulfilled 61 major prophecies. There was a statistician, you know, went and put the statistics together of what, what are the odds of all the people born in history that you're born in Bethlehem? What are the odds? And you, you can put in odds to that. Okay, not only that you're born in Bethlehem, but that you're born in the tribe of Judah in the line of Jesse in the house of David and put in odds on that. And then, of course, not only are the odds of each individual prophecy, but then fulfilling two of these prophecies, three of these prophecies. And this particular statistician said the odds of one person. Now, remember, somebody said this is a coincidence. The odds of one person fulfilling all of these prophecies is one times 10 to the 17th power. That's a load of zeros, folks. In other words, it's statistically impossible. It's impossible to say this was a coincidence. And as a matter of fact, it wasn't a coincidence. It was manipulated. It was all put together by God. And folks, even if you can't, you say, you know what? I just, I don't believe in a virgin birth. I don't believe in resurrection. I don't believe in the supernatural part. You still have this person named Jesus fulfilling over 50. Over, it's still statistically impossible. Fulfilling over 50 major prophecies folks you see how clear how easy god has made it for us to be able to hone in on who this person jesus christ is i mean yes folks it's not natural for us to believe in a virgin birth or a resurrection or to, to believe that somebody walked on water it's not in our nature to believe that it's in our nature to laugh at that idea and god knows it's in our nature to not believe in that and as I said a moment ago, he knows it's in our nature to miss this. It's in our nature to reject it. It's in our nature to ignore it altogether. And so God surrounded this life with these spectacular things because, folks, the bottom line is Jesus is God's gift. Gift for you. It's not just about proving something. God doesn't want you to miss his gift and so he made it abundantly clear so we could wade through the religions of the world, so we could wade through the claims of religious leaders. You should ask, what kind of claims have they made? How have they backed it up? What evidence is there? Folks, you know what? It takes faith to come to Christ. It takes faith to believe in him. But faith here is not synonymous with being stupid. It's not synonymous with being non-intellectual. Do you see how much evidence, how much reason God has given for our faith? And so much of this, well, I'm still not sure about the Bible. So much of it can be verified in non-Christian historical sources outside of the Bible. Folks, you know what all these prophecies do? They absolutely pinpoint the one single person on this planet that has ever qualified to be the eternal son of God. 
and they've, pin, they've pinpointed, not for him, he knows. <laughs> they pinpoint it for you and me. See, these prophecies demand a response. Listen to me, you can't just look at this and go, you can't even look at this and go, cool. No, folks, when I say these prophecies demand a response, they demand a response by God. God holds you accountable with this load of information he's given you to make it abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God. These prophecies demand a response. What have you learned today? What does all of this say about our faith? When I start to see all this, doesn't this say something about the quality and the depth of my faith? When you begin to see the reality, man, wait a minute, this isn't just something I believe because everybody's got to have a religion. This is for real. This guy's the son of God. Then doesn't that say something about the quality and the depth of my obedience? Jesus Christ is the son of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for not leaving it up to me to, to sort through all the religions of the world and figure out which one makes sense and answers the questions that I'm asking. Thank you for, for not leaving it up to me to be able to identify the one who would come out of Bethlehem from eternity. Thank you for making it so abundantly clear. You put arrows everywhere. They're all flashing. We can't miss them. Unless we're just more committed to ourselves and to our sin. Lord, thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. And doing everything necessary to make it clear to me who and what that gift is. Father, as I begin to weigh the, the evidence of how clear it is that there really is a Jesus. He really is the Son of God. He really is the Son of God. Lord, may that, that thought right there, He really is the Son of God. May that thought not leave me at any moment during this week ahead. And may nothing guide the words out of my mouth, the steps I take, my response to things. May nothing guide any of that more than the one truth. He really is the Son of God. Lord, thank you for making it clear. Now give me the discipline, the courage, the faith to respond appropriately. Thank you, God, yes, for proving you're the Son of God. But I thank you that it really wasn't about proving something. It was about giving a gift, a gift that I desperately need, a gift of the person of Jesus Christ 
and the work he did for me on the cross to rescue me from sin and from death and from hell. May I realize, may we realize without this gift, we don't have a chance. With the gift, we inherit eternity and the riches of heaven. How wonderful. How wonderful. The person of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.